Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Neve Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for doing this. I'm very excited to talk about it. I think um, AI is definitely something that's a hot topic at the moment, for sure. Um, but I suppose first things first is, are you able to both introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Andrew Page, and I work for Theogen Genomics. I, uh, I'm a computer scientist originally, but then I kind of fell into microbial bioinformatics, and that's what I've been doing for the past uh, decade or so, writing uh, bioinformatics applications for microbes. And my PhD was on uh, machine learning, so it's it really is my area, and I'm really excited that it's now come, you know, eventually. So I'm Leave Tomalty. I'm the director of LSE Library, uh, which includes being managing director of LSE Press. And my previous role was as head of open research at the University of Cambridge. So there I was dealing across all the sciences as well. Um, but my, I'm coming this to this more with the interest in the impacts on publishing. Um, the impacts on information literacy and critical appraisal and what does all of this mean for what support research services and libraries should be providing. Mm, really interesting. Mm. So yeah, we're here to talk about your paper that you published with us. Are you able to tell me a little bit about your recently published paper? Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that it, it wasn't a research paper, it was a guest editorial, so it, it should be read in that light. Mm. It's, it's very much an overview um, a few paragraphs to provoke thought that was the aim mm. um, and then uh, Andrew used chat GPT to generate the actual uh, AI generated part of the editorial. So the background to it is that uh, we were in I, I'd set up a hackathon in uh, Cambridge uh, to go along just before AB PHM Applied Bioinformatics Public Health Microbiology and so we we're all sitting in a room for a few days and Everyone was, you know, really into AI and, and ChatGPT because it's the in thing. And then just at the end of it, we're like, well, maybe we could get uh, ChatGPT to actually, you know, tell us what the ethics are around using it because it is a huge question. No one really knows what the deal is and how to handle AI. And so we got ChatGPT to then go and write its own editorial on the ethics of uh, using AI generated content in uh, publications and whatnot, because it's, you know, we can see the power of it and it's, you can't get away from it. You know, it, it is there and everyone is using it from, you know, little kids for their homework all the way up to, uh, you know, old professors. Yes, yeah, so you're talking about the ethics of AI surrounding like microbial genomics specifically. How do you think that kind of differs to the more general concept of, you know, ethics of AI? I guess in our domain, a lot of our work is using public health and now is getting more and more into the clinical uh, space. So it can be quite dangerous if everything you base uh, you know, on is a hallucination from an AI. So you have to be very careful because it can be used to make real decisions on public policy or on uh, for clinical decisions uh, in real human beings. So 
we have to be very careful. And I think it's really interesting because um, in the content that was generated by ChatGPT, it didn't pick up on things like that at all. It also didn't pick up on things like it talks about the risk of reusing plagiarized content without considering the fact that in itself it's plagiarism because mm. it's not your own thoughts. Yeah. So this it was it was quite interesting. We deliberately didn't critique what it came out in the editorial because we wanted the people reading to critique it and have a bit of discussion. Um, but but definitely there were gaps in its own interpretation of what the implications should be in microbial genomics. It didn't touch on that at all. No, and I guess <laughs> it's it's a hard area to to delve into because we don't know the answers, and so it hasn't been trained on all of this stuff already. So I think it's going to take a long time. It like people will be using it for a long time before we catch up with the kind of ethics and how it should be used and what we should do with it, and how it should be referenced. Mm -hmm. and things that at the moment it's just free for all yeah yeah a bit of a wild west i think with, with mm -hmm. ai at the moment and yeah completely mm -hmm. agree i think sometimes as well with especially things like on the internet for example the speed of development is so quick and then perhaps maybe things like laws and policy don't take as long as uh take a lot longer to kind of catch up mm -hmm. um so just for everybody listening, so there's elements of the editorial that are generated by ChatGPT. Is that all of it or have you sort of whittled it down? How does that work? The way we approached it was to have some opening paragraphs that were clearly labelled as human-generated content. Yeah. And then there is a, a, there's a heading called AI-generated gener editorial. And so everything from that point onwards was automatically generated there was no editing or uh, restructuring in at all of that section was there Andrew? No it was just copy editing you know to make the headings look nice that's absolutely it and we left it to it you know so if I made a mistake then you know it's not perfect there are bits that uh that we've identified that you know aren't what we would have said but you know that that is how it is but it's it's quite close and it's quite self-reflective which is eerie. Yeah yeah and and What's kind of worrying sometimes is I think AI is getting surprisingly good at a lot of things. And um, we'll talk about your podcast in a moment because I, you listen to that and you, this is very obviously AI generated. But um, there are some elements where it's difficult to discern between what is human made and what is AI made. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's one of the ethical considerations going forward. Yeah, I know the, there's going to be a deluge of information coming out over the next little while, you know, because anyone can go and give it a small amount, a small prompt and then get a huge amount of text out. And what you're probably going to find is that a, the average postdoc or PhD student is now, instead of having one paper a year, might have, you know, five papers a year. If they can just churn out all the kind of boilerplate stuff and just getting through that sea of information is going to be a pain. And even on the uh, AI generated podcast that we're going to discuss later, I actually generated another podcast in the hackathon. I wrote a script or rather ChatGPT wrote a script to uh, take in any microbial bioinformatics tool. You just give the tool name and then it'll generate a script for you and it'll generate the, uh, the cover art with DALI, which is another AI generated uh, image generator and uh, the title as well of the podcast. And then, you know, it just puts it into, um, it uploaded to a hosting platform. And, you know, within a few minutes, I had lots of episodes, all AI generated. I didn't even time to read them, you know, like they're, they're churned out so quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's the feature we have, you know, because these were then read out by AI voices, which sound, you know, they're about 90% similar to a real voice. Mm -hmm. And it can take a while to realize what, you know, what they are. 
So that's the future, you know, a tidal wave of content is coming at us. Which, given that um, in librarianship, I should say probably for those, because this isn't a librarian audience, I view librarianship as being um, an information profession. It is about uh, managing the information and then connecting it with the people that need it in whatever discipline they're studying. And when I was doing my library masters, we were learning about information overload and the, this, this tidal wave of information we already had 15 years ago. So if this is going to massively exacerbate that problem it's going to be a real challenge and a real challenge for publishing because um i think there are pros and cons like elizabeth bick has been able to make use of ai to identify a lot more of the problematic um images from from papers than she she could do previously so there are good things in terms of being able to use it to detect problems but there are also challenges because if you can um as andrew says just roll out a new paper in a few minutes almost mm. with ChatGPT doing most of the work. We don't have enough peer reviewers. The publishing platforms can't cope with what they've already got. It's already a broken system. How on earth is it going to cope with all that's going to come now? It's, it's a real challenge. Well, how soon are we going to have uh, AI peer reviewers? You know, if you can't find them, then you're, you're yeah. probably going to get them uh, popping up, you know, particularly in the, the journals of low standards. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be a challenge, you know, because I, just for as a joke, um, <laughs> I put in, you know, critically, you know, evaluate this paper and one of my papers and, uh, you know, basically tear it to shreds and, and um, be reviewer three. And it did a very good job. It wasn't accurate, but it did a very good job of, you know, like absolutely destroying the paper. And you could very easily get people, you know, being a bit lazy, maybe reviewers doing it themselves, mm. or you might get uh, journals, you know, thinking actually this is a, a reasonable way to get reviews out quickly. Mm. Yeah. Do first pass at least, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I suppose it's the knowing that it's happening I, is, is definitely the first point of call, isn't it? Is knowing that it's going to be reviewed by an AI is definitely something that needs to be needs to be made clear. Um, that, that kind of brings me on to what I was going to ask you, there were, uh, I think I was on your Twitter and you just summarised one of your papers or this uh, review potentially, um, an AI generated tweet uh, came up onto your Twitter from this. Um, and I, a lot of my work is summarising papers. So I was like, wow, okay, that's going to save me, mm -hmm. could potentially save me loads of time. But how secure are you in knowing that AI is then correct and has Lots of people can interpret papers in so many different ways and what people think is important changes. Yeah. Uh, so ChatGPT has all the CC BY papers from PubMed uh, up until 2021. So you can ask it about any paper that's been published uh, relatively recently. So that's basically everything in MGen. Yeah. And it'll give you a reasonable summary, like a really, really, really good summary. I asked it to summarize the paper I wrote in 2015 and it then it considered all the other people who've cited it in that context and then it gave me things that I hadn't even thought about you know as use cases or, or you know benefits and, and whatnot of this particular piece of software mm -hmm. written which is kind of mad so that's really insightful mm. and I've used it for summarizing papers as well you know obviously it's a very easy thing to do you know mm -hmm. you copy and paste in text and, and it gives you a small summary um it's going to change a lot of things. It's mostly correct. So where I found it incorrect is, say, you ask it to summarize something that isn't formally published. 
mm. and it'll struggle to um, associate the correct authors or institutions, you know, because it kind of hallucinates slightly. It gets mostly correct, you know, there'll be people in the right domain, but it won't be the actual people mm. necessarily. So you have to be careful around facts. Yeah. But it looks confidently mm. correct. It, it's confidently incorrect. Sorry. But I think that's what's dangerous about it is that it's all so plausible when you're reading it, but it's not necessarily correct at all. Um, yeah, which is where uh, a lot of universities are worrying about how to handle this in terms of academic misconduct situations mm. and that, that sort of thing. Um, and actually, at the moment, it's so bad at referencing that it should be fairly easy in a lot of cases to mm. spot. Actually, that's not a real reference. So that, that you can it will even generate the DOI, but you click on it, it brings you to something totally unrelated. So at the moment, that's fairly easy to spot, I think. The question will be, as Andrew says, it's going to get better and better. Yeah. Um, what's it going to be like in five years' time? I suppose, though, at the stages it is at the moment, you need this critical eye to be able to spot where the mistakes are and yeah. to be able to be able to use it effectively. You still mm-hmm. need to have that background of yes knowledge. Yeah, but also I would add, I've always been banging on about critical appraisal anyway. So... Um, I mean, there are examples in Lancet of papers that were clearly fabricated data that, that, that led to, I suppose I'm thinking about the Wakefield paper and the implications on vaccination, anti-vax campaigns and so on. Um, there are lots of examples of good papers in good venues that turned out not to be good at all. Mm. So I think that critical eye has always been needed. Yeah. I guess it may be a good thing if it gets people to because I think people do like to take shortcuts they like to go oh that's a famous journal therefore I'm going to trust it which actually they never should have done mm. but if this sort of thing means people become more aware that they need to be super critical of anything they're reading I think that's a good thing really excellent point yeah <laughs> but it's getting better and better and better all the time and we're only at the very beginning of this wave and in six months' time, it could be ten times better, as, mm. especially if it has access to live data and the internet and uh, a memory. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be scary because it will be able to give you much more convincing facts, which may not be real facts, but they'll look correct and the URLs will, will seem correct and things like that. So it's going to be dangerous. Mm. And it'll be harder to spot as well, you know, um, at the moment, you can, you can kind of figure out the patterns, you know, there's a bit of a, a pattern to how it uh, say summarizes data and whatever, and you can, you can spot it occasionally. Uh, or if it's like, say, US um, versions of spellings or phrases and things like that, you, you know, it, it's, it does stand out sometimes, but it's going to get hard. And I suppose to bring it back, I guess, where do you foresee AI, um, ChatGPT, these kinds of um, softwares, where do you see them coming into microbial genomics research? Where would this software be useful? So I use it a lot for coding mathematics mm. applications, and it is phenomenally useful. So I start off, um, say, with a Python script. I'll write a descriptive, uh, I'll, I'll write a paragraph of text at the very top of the file saying what I wanted to do and kind of laying out oh, these are the inputs, these are the outputs and, and very descriptively saying uh, what is going to happen. And then it goes and generates kind of the skeleton in the first pass. And that will save me, you know, a huge amount of work. It, it probably speeds up my coding overall by about 20%. Mm. And it means that I, you know, it's easier to generate things. I don't have to, you know, go and Google stuff and go to Stack Overflow and think, oh, how do I do this? How do I use this library? It, gives you the, the template. It's not always correct because things change, 
but it's mostly correct and it gets you in the right ballpark or and a lot of what you do when you program you, you know as a human you'll make mistakes you make typos this will get a correct first time so you're kind of skipping over that step you can get, tell it to make tests for you so, um, you can tell it to put in comments so uh, there's a guy in Australia Wanatam he went and did a, an application called write the he's at a MDU in uh, in uh, Melbourne and basically what you do is you give it a piece of software and it writes the comments writes the docs for you mm. and uh, in a structured manner um, as they should be done and so that means your code is then well commented and someone coming along reading it can can uh, take it but you can just pass an entire repository of Bioformatic software and it generates all that up for you so like you can actually greatly enhance what has already been uh, produced which, which is kind of cool so i i'm hopeful for the future that it'll be used everywhere um all the way from coding to uh, lit reviews to improving papers improving english actually it'll help people who don't have english as a first language to rewrite stuff you know that mm. they've already written and you know correct those little mistakes wow interesting okay and so chat gpt runs and sorry ai software uh runs through very much a, a code a following patterns following rules following knowledge do you think though that there's an element of space for subjectivity and um kind of creative thought within science and could could these types of ai software bridge that gap and do you think they could ever get there that's an interesting question i i have first of all the easy the easy question Absolutely, there should. I, I I do believe that there's a certain amount of subjectivity, but then that's probably my social science background showing through. <laughs> um, could AI ever bridge that gap? I guess the the leap they've made already. It's not inconceivable that they could make that leap in future. I don't think they can do it now. Well, I see. There are many different ways they're writing um, software and different styles, and it is kind of an art form. Mm. And even though there are set ways to do things or like set protocols in a lab, there is a lot of creativity within that to do things, to modify things. And that's where ChatGPT and these large language models will fall down because they won't necessarily have that skill built in. They'll, you know, they'll know how to do something ABC, but they won't realize that, oh, actually, maybe if you vary things slightly or in the real world, you know, you pick up a pet and do this or there's bubbles or, you know, these other kind of minor little things that happen um it won't necessarily understand mm -hmm. and so it can't then produce better solutions all it can do is look at what's happened before mm. so i think the creativity steps a lot of those will stay purely at humans but what it will allow is for a human to be like the conductor of an orchestra yeah. and to you know rather than just being a musician within the orchestra and mm. to take a much higher level role and then produce work faster and quicker and bring things together. So actually, mm. it's going to accelerate science quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can agree with you on that point for sure. Um, when I speak to my colleagues about AI, their first uh, step towards it is that is doing a part of something that's your job that you're getting paid for. And mm. now there's something that's a part of your job that's going to be AI generated, probably purely from like a, a perspective of um, people being in work and you know there may be elements of work in a lab for example where it would be done by an assistant but they're learning whilst they're doing it for example mm -hmm. um, what are your kind of thought thought processes there? I did a lot of work in the pandemic uh, on genome sequencing of mm. uh, SARS-CoV-2 and you had a lot of labs where they bought one of every possible robot 
and they have you know vast quantities of money and yet they're struggling with just integrating all those different machines and making the processes work and they're having to you know take a usb key from one place to another to plug into the computer to plug into something else and it meant that they you know the staff were vastly underutilized whereas in my lab in, in the quantum institute uh, we had basically if we needed more capacity we just employed more postdocs um to do that and so we were able to actually scale up much quicker and faster and respond to things and respond to things like different formats you know and maybe something comes in in tubes uh, mm -hmm. versus plates or different types of plates and being able to respond to that versus a very rigid workflow which is built for scale but it takes so long to get it there you know and refined and working so yeah we're not going to be out of a job anytime soon well and i think as well it, it frees you up to do the more interesting aspects of jobs mm. and whether everybody is is skilled to do that is another issue and there anybody involved in management needs to be thinking about that and how they bring people along if they're not there already um but if if i think about the chronic problems in he i've yet to meet an academic that works a sensible number of hours per week yeah <laughs> i i don't think running out of work is an issue i think yeah. anything that's going to improve those work workload issues has to be a good thing mm, mm. and i suppose it's a an output thing as well is mm. that you may, you may be working hopefully less hours but a normal working week but your output will be increased because it could of, be yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. or you work a crazy number of hours a week and you just have more outputs well <laughs> I, I really i really think we have to fight back at the current culture of overworking in he it's horrendous yeah yeah definitely but certainly for podcasting um i know i've i take the transcripts that are produced by the podcast for my uh, micro podcast and then i put them into chat gpt and i tell it to summarize it and then it produces show notes, which are very, very accurate. Mm. And then that gives much more, you know, someone can then go and read that. So maybe they, they can listen to it, but they can read most of what goes on. And then for, you know, search engines can find it more appropriately. Whereas in the past, you know, that was just a chore. You'd have to pay someone, even a year ago, you'd have to pay someone to go and do that transcript, yeah. transcription mm -hmm. and checking it and making sure it's correct. It's just you can throw in terrible transcription and it, you know, figures it out, you know, that what, what people are actually saying, what people are actually discussing. It's kind of good. Yeah, yeah. Now you've moved on perfectly to podcasts. <laughs> um, no, definitely. If I had a good transcription software at the moment, I have to go in and correct it because it transcribes things wrong. So mm -hmm. that would be great for me. Um, so, yeah, you love able to tell me a little bit about your podcast. So we have two different podcasts. Myself and Neve have research pages, which is focused on, I guess, the computer science and then the librarianship and the open research coming together and just discussing about academic supporting academic research um and all the issues around that and so what i did was one day i one weekend i was, I was annoying neve about ai um, it was easter and he wanted me to be having conversations about what way i was going to apply ai in my job and i thought no I am on holiday. Talk to me in two days. So we're also married. <laughs> we, we are also married. Uh, <laughs> um, Just showing up at your house. <laughs> How did it create that script then? What prompts did you give it? How did it work? I did not give it very many prompts. It was just something like I work in microbial genomics research and, uh, you know, I want to discuss the ethics of AI and publishing and scholarly research. And then I got it. I said, okay, write me a, a podcast episode for this particular podcast research pages with two hosts and given the names and then off it went wow and uh, you know sometimes you have to kind of direct it and say i need 
3,000 words or 1,000 words and there are limits on what you can put in and get out. Those limits are increasing all the time. Actually, only last week they went from uh, 4,000 tokens up to 16,000 tokens, which is a staggering increase of so 4,000 basically words mm. up to 16,000 words in its memory, um, which means now you can very easily write say, something that's the length of a book chapter, you know, and while feeding in all the contextual information. And yeah, so anyway, we, we generate that podcast. I also have a different podcast called the Microbinfi podcast. So that's a microbial informatics podcast uh, that I co-host with uh, Nabil Ali Khan from the Quartum Institute and uh, Lee Katz from the CDC. And again, we are, you know, f- super focused more on the technical end of uh, mm. informatics and ChatGPT. But, you know, we have like four episodes coming out now on ChatGPT because that's what everyone in our community is talking about yeah. and using and um, putting into every tool they can possibly think about. And using it for papers and using it for God only knows what. Mm. Some of them are, I presume, are citing it or, or acknowledging it. But I'd say some aren't. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. Well, I think um, my immediate reaction to that is the, the thing that I love about podcasting is this human-to-human interaction, isn't it? And that is just completely bypassed yeah. through your... It's, it's a cool thing um, that you've done, but it's very exciting. I don't think we'd be wanting to do that again. That was just an experiment, yeah. really, and a bit of a play. But um... but it's good for, you know, give me an outline, you know, yeah, yeah, give yeah. it a topic, or actually give me topics to discuss, yeah. and then give me an outline of the podcast. And, you know, it, it can break it down in bullet points, which is kind of a, a nice thing. Sometimes just arranging information edit, is hard. Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but, yeah, but I completely agree with you that the, the real value of podcasting is the conversational flow between mm. two human beings or more mm. um yeah so i don't think i don't think that's been achieved by that i think it was a bit of fun but will the human to human podcasts of the future just be like the artisanal mugs that you've gotten you know handmade <laughs> versus the mass produced yeah. you know stuff made uh, overseas well i know which one i choose and i can't even keep up with the podcasts that are human to human already that i want to listen to so i don't think i'm going to be listening to the ai generated ones it's an excellent analogy though i, I, I i'm getting on board <laughs> Oh, amazing. Yeah, well, I mean, it would have saved me all of my prep time and everything, so <laughs> there you go. Um, perhaps then a little bit more kind of onto the more general kind of AI ethics. Um, you mentioned earlier about plagiarism. Mm. Um, where do you kind of foresee that going? What are your yeah. kind of top issues? It's re- Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I'm not working as directly with this anymore as I used to, mm. but I know a lot of people are putting a lot of thought into, well, what does this mean for how people should be citing how people should be clearly labeling what their what their work what was their work and what was the work of others and um i mentioned the fact that uh chat gpt said uh that the agent the ai generated content may inadvertently reproduce plagiarized material and that's what it thought was the problem but i'm looking at it thinking the fact that this is not generated by the person is already i mean does that count as plagiarism Plagiarism is taking the thoughts of other people. AI is not a person. Do we count it as plagiarism? Do yeah. we count it? Like, what, what is it? I mean, we definitely have to label these things clearly and explain how things were used so that it's so that people's work can be appropriately evaluated. Yeah. Um, but, but right now, I think that that's, 
that's the question. It's I think it's being defined at the moment. And I, I think every single university in the country is trying to have this conversation mm. and probably every publisher as well yeah. about how do we approach this problem? And I don't think there's consensus on this at all yet because it's all just come out of nowhere, hasn't it? Absolutely. And actually, I uh, originally for this editorial put ChatGPT down as an uh, author yeah. and mm. it did spark debate. Are they, should they be authors? Should they not be? That's true. It was removed uh, by the editorial office. Um, and I don't know if I fully agree with that, but I would have kept ChatGPT in as an author because, you know, they... They authored two-thirds of the paper, didn't they? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I, I there's, Yeah, there's the twofold sort of side of it. So it's using ChatGPT and not um saying you have or and then there's also this generated content um specifically from this kind of concept as well of like of art as well um but my kind of argument from that side would be if we're not just amalgamations of everything we've read mm -hmm. and everything we've created and everything we've looked at isn't that just what chat gpt is also doing absolutely yeah i agree yeah mm -hmm. yeah that's my absolute minefield um, at the moment, ChatGPT is run by, is it Mike, who, who runs ChatGPT? It That's is a good question. <laughs> OpenAI, who started off as a non-profit, then they moved to a fixed, a capped profit, and they are half-owned by Microsoft, and they are the least open company I've ever come across, which has the word open in <laughs> No one knows what it's trained on and they refuse to tell anyone because I think they're terrified of being sued. And you have open um, models where they are totally open about where their training sets are coming from and they are facing legal action left, right and center. So I can see why they're not releasing any information, but they're not open in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Well, I mean that yeah, that perfectly um, phrased my question. I uh, my question is about data privacy. Who owns chat? If we rely so heavily on AI to do our jobs and then it goes, mm -hmm. what 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 future do you see there? Well, I guess one thing to be aware of is a huge number of companies are banning the use of ChatGPT because of the risk of people putting. Uh, commercially sensitive data mm. into it and then anybody would be able to pick it up because ChatGPT could then present it to somebody else as part of their solution to their problem and, and then suddenly they've got no control of their own mm. uh, information anymore so uh, yeah that is something people are worrying about already from that angle but I don't know if you wanted to answer from a different angle. Well I love it I mean I <laughs> no kidding <laughs> one of my friends uh, I started to arrange like a, a Viva and so I, I put in the email trail into ChatGPT and I was like, I'd like to answer it with these points. And then it produced a beautiful answer, referencing everything that was in a previous thread, uh, you know, perfectly interleaving it, perfectly given the context. Right? And I was like, wow, you know, this, this kind of email would have taken me 20 minutes to write because it's very long and uh, detailed. And it's just, you know, you can give a few bullet points and it makes it. And yeah, I think, I think it's fantastic. And it's similarly like when you go and you put in maybe drafts of papers, that's not published yet. And if you tell it to expand upon it or rewrite it or whatever, there is a, a risk that that might leak out at the mm. other side. But at the same time, I guess a lot of what I do is open or everything that I do is open anyway, and it's going to be published eventually. So if it leaks out a few minutes earlier or a few days earlier, then so what? Mm. But I can see for commercially sensitive stuff, if you're working on patent, stuff that's patentable or whatever, you don't necessarily want to get out at the other end. Mm. There is a lot of new models coming out. This has sparked a whole new area. You know, now it's uh, everyone is 
pumping billions into it. And those, some of them will work offline and that's going to be a big thing. You know, if, if in your phone it can run on a, a model or if you can run it on your own internal mm -hmm. stuff and keep everything internal, like Amazon are doing that, they, they're, or they claim they have, that they have specialist chips and you can spin up a virtual machine and then you can have a pre-built, you know, base uh, large language model and then you put your data on top of your company's data and you keep it all private. Mm -hmm. And that that's, sounds like a really good way to do it. I'm sure a lot of companies would go down that route where they can just feed in everything in their entire company, dump it in and then off you go. Well, interesting solution to the whole problem of knowledge management and knowledge transfer, which is a real, real issue for most companies at the moment. Um, I've had a lot of interesting conversations, actually, specifically with engineering companies um, around this challenge of how do we learn from past mistakes? Mm. You know, people remember for maybe three to five years, oh, don't do that because it burned such and such when they tried it that way. But then seven, eight years ago, somebody comes along, makes the same mistake because nobody remembers that happened before. So I can really see some interesting applications on that side of things, that um, learning organization, knowledge management type side of things. So I remember a few years ago, there was a, a, a project from King's on called Cogstack, and it was basically natural language processing of NHS data. Mm. Uh, because a lot of patient records, you'd be horrified to hear this, you know, are handwritten or they're... Uh, in 20 different databases and then if you for research want to pull out specific patients who have specific criteria it can be very difficult uh, to, or even to go mine them or to identify you know markers of where they maybe those that population there is actually uh, subjected to a higher risk of particular disease developing and you know so there is some really good use cases for this and i'm just thinking wow if they applied this kind of uh, data to it or, or these kind of models, if they could turbocharge that and say the NHS could really be a much better resource for um, for research uh, in that regard. You know, if you could link up those 50 different databases, like during, uh, during COVID, we had to have a team of people just doing metadata mm. and pulling things together from different databases, handwritten notes, spreadsheets, you name it. And that was just to get enough data for surveillance to give to the UKHSA, um, which is insane. Like you shouldn't need that in this day and age. but you know, maybe an AI can do a little bit better by linking things up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. But I suppose the, it's it's not great that uh, Black Mirror's The New Seasons just come out <laughs> because all I'm thinking is the whole time is just a bit of a worrying, you don't know what they're doing with mm. your data and your, yeah. you're, you're feeding it with so much information. Yeah. Um, and again, like we literally, like we said earlier, is it's going to take a while for regulation and law to kind of, keep us sort of safer on that side as safe yeah. as they can keep us so yeah so I'm still not 100% convinced but I do completely get where you're coming from <laughs> I'd also argue though that we've been feeding Facebook and Google yeah. and all these companies with way too much already yeah uh, so uh, that's one that it's it's really difficult it's really I resisted it as long as I could but it got to the stage where you couldn't there were so many things that you literally could not sign your child up for such and such a camp unless you had a Facebook account. Yeah. It's really so pervasive now. It's pretty much impossible to protect yourselves from these companies. Yeah. And I'm not saying we should give up, but I agree that this issue of the regulation and trying to get it right um, needs to be tackled. I haven't been following it closely, but I have seen some criticism that uh, some of the governance that's being shaped around AI appears to be being shaped by these big companies that have their interests at the heart, not our interests. Yeah. So um, I'm not following it closely, so I'm not an expert on that. But 
yes, I agree, it's worrying. Mm. Do you know what's really terrifying? Like uh, OpenAI, the ChatGPT was trained on like Reddit and Twitter. These are toxic, toxic places. Yeah, true. And there have been many examples throughout history of recent history of AI bots becoming racist and becoming just mm. right-wing extremists and all this kind of stuff very, very quickly, presumably because all their training sets are based on very vocal, toxic people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a whole can of worms of AI in the wrong hands yes. and all this kind of thing as well. It's interesting, your point is about having to buy into it. That could very easily happen with AI if mm. you're in an office and everybody else is using AI to yeah. process their data and you're not. Yeah. And you're going to be ultimately behind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, don't mm. worry. Um, th this is my last question, actually. So I, I was really surprised to see that there's this idea of, um, I think it was in the benefits or um, of, of AI where it said about promoting collaboration, mm. which I was really shocked by. Um, yeah, can you tell me kind of about that and what your thoughts are on? Well, so, I mean, again, this was in the section that was generated by yeah. AI, <laughs> but I think, I think it's true. If you take that example you gave earlier um, in the conversation, Andrew, where you got it to look at what you'd worked at and it found applications that had not occurred to you at all. You can see how if it, if it throws up, a, oh, actually, there's a link with what people are doing in this totally unrelated field, mm. it could be a good opportunity to then go, well, maybe I should talk to such and such a person that I know works in that field and see if there's opportunity to follow that mm. angle I hadn't considered before. Um, but I mean, I, I should probably say we don't have any attachment to the AI generated content in the editorial <laughs> at all. It yes. is all intended to provoke discussion. It's yeah. not that we believe what it has said at all. No. Yeah, of course. Of course. But and, and what a great discussion it has <laughs> been. I've very much in enjoyed this. Is there anything that you particularly wanted to bring to the table to, to discuss? I think we've covered everything, really. It's yeah. been a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really, really interesting. I'm still not quite there, but I will. <laughs> I'm definitely more on the side of AI now after this. <laughs> well done, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.